1: and welcome to episode 10 of the wizard files the special interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of wizard magazine i'm adam and joining us this time around is a man whose name you've heard several times on the podcast throughout the series a contributor whose words grace the pages of wizard in the magazine and online as well as spin-off magazines for many years welcome to the show brian Warmouth. brian how you doing it's a pleasure to be here, Adam. I, I
0: really love what you've been doing with this show. You know, it's it's wonderful to be able to talk about this stuff with people. It's It, it feels like a long time ago, but it wasn't so long ago. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's exciting for us, too, to know that it's basically the wizard staffers who are our audience for this show. They love it so much, <laughs> even though they were there. You definitely have a core audience. Uh, so this is the question. You know, we always like to go back to the beginning. You ended up writing about comics and living a life that was uh, ingrained with them. But how did comics... Comics enter your life. Tell us your origin story. It's probably like a lot of kids uh, in my generation uh,
0: started out. You know, it goes back to like elementary school. There was a time I was aware of comics before I was really into them and before I was locking myself into, you know, multiple crossovers and looking for multiple issues per week just to stay up with stories. The first comic I remember reading as a kid was off the rack at a Walmart. It it was Amazing Spider-Man 321, which was part of the Assassination plot. It had Silver Sable and Paladin on the cover. I don't know if you remember. It was a a McFarlane issue. It was one of those things. I, I love McFarlane's way of doing things. It was not... Quite so cookie cutter Spider-Man is what I was used to from, you know, seeing him on like, you know, branded toys and stuff prior to that point. Like probably the Secret Wars toys that I'd seen and, and had one or two of when I was little were like my first awareness of, of, of Marvel superheroes. And I also remember a, like a card game maybe at one point before then. But I, I read that comic and it was probably way older than what I was really ready for at the time because I'm sure I was seven or something. It was elementary school days. But what I really remembered was when the Jim Lee X-Men series Launched and the first issue I ever went into a comic book shop to pick up was that the beast cover from that number one issue. And it was cause I had some friends who had parents that were into comics and, and I, I knew about their collections and I used to talk to them about comics prior to then, but I jumped head first into X Men and was a loyal, loyal X Men reader for years on up through the age of apocalypse stuff
1: yeah i i owe a lot to cool comics parents for getting me into the hobby for sure not my own but my friend's dad who was going through his midlife crisis took us to all the shows and everything yeah it was great
0: isn't that interesting my parents did not i think my, my father had been into like some old silver age dc comics back in the day but he hadn't saved anything and it wasn't it, it was a point of connection for me with him but that was kind of what got me talking about it and then i think it was my friend and his dad were telling me about the the local comic shop in town like how cool the guys were who were running it it was it was a nice little shop midgard comics i hope it's still there i, I haven't been in years but it was run by by a little family actually in in my the little college town charleston illinois that i grew up in and i think it was also the marvel universe series 3 cards i got into cuz like my my earliest memories of like social interactions with comics were with people i met at the comic shop and some friends i had in elementary school and we'd like trade cards Oh, awesome. While other kids were out like playing soccer and baseball, (laughs) there was like a little spot we'd always pick on the curb and be like, all right, what do you got this week? You find anything good? Oh my gosh, this is amazing. And like, you know, I can distinctly remember being in like fourth grade. And the one time I managed to trade some cards up to an issue of Venom Lethal Protector. And I thought it was the greatest thing that i did. The Ultimate trade, trade, yeah, like spare cards I had that this guy really wanted, and he was willing to, to trade this. That was quite something. So, you know, I was into it for my elementary, middle school years. What were your core titles
1: as you were reading?
0: Well, if you're talking about the '90s, like it was, it was that Jim Lee X-Men, uh, Wildcats too I, I think those are the ones that I really remembered and then yeah I mean th- this has changed because like I have a lot of other interest in like older comics like I I don't know if you ever read the old Herbie comics the Fat Fury No but he has a he has a collection of lollipops on his belt that give him
1: those special Oh right colors. yes 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 I do know yeah, that yeah, one
0: yeah, yeah 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 so it's a core and I love old uh Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane comics and the old Jimmy Olsen comics from that era, but X Men was like my gateway in the beginning. I remember like Zero Hour was something I was really into. Maximum Carnage was one of those big crossover events that like I'm talking about that just had me going back to the comic store every week. And in fact, like I probably like emptied out my entire savings at the time because I was overstretching. And I remember getting to the end of Age of Apocalypse, and I remember the like the Clone Saga arriving. But there was a period where I just like had literally maximum myself out and didn't feel like I could keep up with the stories I wanted to keep up with anymore and I went away for a few years and that was like junior high, high school but the thing was I I worked as a summer camp counselor at a summer camp in southern Illinois and I wandered into this college town comic shop there on my break one time while I was doing this, this was like late high school I think, maybe maybe summer after my senior year even, but the thing that got me back into comics and got me in for good that time was wandering in and it was one it was seeing Kevin Smith's name on the new green arrow number one that had come out and it was ultimate X-Men and it was optic nerve, Adrian Tomina's optic nerve comics that I picked up there and a combination of those. And also it was when Grant Morrison came back to start on, on new X-Men. Those were the things I picked up and like really opened up my mind to like, wow, the artwork doesn't have to be like this. You can have this kind of writing. Oh my gosh, this Grant Morrison st- stuff is so trippy and amazing and I can't believe this is what X-Men is like right now. And I, it like supercharged me for the next five years of my life, taking me on into wizard and everything else kind of flowed from there. But that was, that was my comic book reading experience. It got me into indie comics. You know, like I got into Strangers in Paradise after that. I got into, you know, Drawn and Quarterly and fanographics and Top Shelf stuff. And, you know, this will come up in, in Wizard. But like one of the things I, I was really excited about when I started working that was how there was a hunger to do more indie coverage. It was a very controlled and small wedge i felt like we were getting into into things because like they'd always been into like the black and white you know dark horse comics and uh some stuff and they'd given terry more some some press previously but I, I always felt like that was that was what i was really I, I was like so hungry for every light they were shining into like what was going on in indie comics and then web comics which rick, rick talked to you about so anyway let me fast forward to the wizard connection or, origin story so i've been reading comics for years and like just like filling up my long boxes like crazy. And it was around, it was somewhere around the beginning of my junior year. I'd been contributing to the Alt Weekly newspaper on campus and been covering arts content. And they let me do a big feature about graphic novels in there, uh, which was like where I like went around talking to a bunch of like English department people and getting some commentary on like, you know, these like large form graph, like the, the fact that we were actually getting like commercially viable, like long form graphic novels coming out and being successful at bookstores. And and what that meant for for visual literature as a medium. And I distinctly remember pitching that piece and wanting to do it because I wanted a showcase piece for my portfolio when I applied to a wizard internship. Because at that point in my life, I was looking at like the final year and a half, two years of of college and was like, what's the one job in the world I want? And literally, if you would ask me that and and people did, like my answer was, I want to be a staff writer at Wizard Magazine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's so interesting because so, so many of the people we've talked to, right? It's just like, oh well, I saw it, it came up and so I jumped on it. And for you, you had it on your vision board, right? It's like I will do this.
0: <laughs> it, was, it was it was it was very intentional and it was very you don't even want to hear how poorly thought out backup plans were that I had at that point. <laughs> I was like, This is what I want to do. I'm I'm gonna try to prepare a portfolio of writing pieces that will like make this work. And you know, I, I looked up on their website and I applied for an internship. I talked to them had the phone call and then i I will tell you that like one of the happiest evenings of my life i will i I can distinctly remember being at my computer probably having done some homework at the end of the week and i I got i remember getting the email with the with the offer and i was living slightly off campus but i immediately responded to it but then i hopped on my bike and i remember i had some friends waiting that was supposed to meet at uh, murphy's pub in champaign Illinois, where University of Illinois is at there. And I remember getting on my bike and I, I totally remember I was riding so fast on campus. I like wiped out and tore the jeans I was wearing open up the side of one leg. And I just <laughs> kept going. and I walked in and I, I will never forget the feeling of walking to that bar. And like they like looked up at me across from the table across the bar when I walked in. And I'm like, guys, I have
1: something incredible to tell you. And they got it. They were like well, Oh, they understood. Huh? They completely okay. understood. It was
0: funny, you know. I it, that group, uh, yeah, that, in that group of friends, I don't think any of them were like super into comics. Although one of them had been taking a graphic novel course with me. There was a, a course that was offered in the English department that year as a as an elective, and he was really getting into it with me. So he he knew exactly what was going on because I used to talk to him about it when we were like swapping notes for uh, preparing for you know essays and stuff. And there, there was a really wonderful uh, instructor at U of I named Daniel Yesbik who went on to, to teach at a different college after that. I had, I had a really good time there as an undergrad. And he, he introduced me to this historian who I think still lives in champaign Illinois, named R.C. Harvey, who used to write for the Comics Journal, which was another side of things. Like, honestly, if I'd known there were Comics Journal internships at the time, I probably would apply for that, too, because at the time that and Wizard were like two parts of my my news diet at the time. And it it was all just kind of became history after that. That was that was the moment I remember accepting. And then I just started making plans for that summer.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, now you made reference to this. And when we had Rick Marshall on, he let us know that your job as an intern involved in large part hiding out in a small room, running the wizard <laughs> website with him.
0: So let me tell you that timeline. Went. I was a summer intern that summer after my junior year of college. And then I kept freelancing for them and for Toyfer as well after that internship was over. And when I got the offer to go out there, I remember it was initially where they basically invited me out. Out there as sort of like a mega internship it was a it was, it was basically an, on an intern basis they wanted me to come assist rick with the website and at one point that turned into a staff writer I, I distinctly remember when they gave me the staff writer business cards when i went out to one of the conventions i was covering for them that that was the point it turned from a post undergrad internship into a full-time job i think the pay was only slightly better but at least i had benefits it. <laughs> so when,
1: when you were just an intern at that point then was it primarily the website or did they have you you know running around again grabbing issues for people to scan and all that
0: yeah and i'll tell you this like when i went back there because rick wasn't there when i did the summer program uh that was under alex segura was the guy i reported to at that point and th- that was the summer that i lived with tj each when we were both in that that intern class and so then i went back to school and i came back it would have been like a year and a half later or something like that and rick's office was where the we called it the intern cave it was (laughs) you had to the labyrinth that was the wizard editorial office you'd you'd walk in through one one door walk past the anime insider office walk past the toy fair office walk back past the main meeting room where the big long table was where we set the issues out and then there was the bullpen for most of the wizard staff editorial staff in the middle there was another area off to the side where there was wizard writers and that later became the online office but then you'd go past the inquest gamer office and there was a little area that looked like it should have been a supply closet that's where they they stuffed all the interns the summer (laughs) and then i came back and like there's rick (laughs) and they they i think they stuffed some interns in there with us too actually but that was where the website under rick was really boring.
1: Okay. And so... For you, obviously, having this goal to arrive at the Wizard offices, to be a part of the staff in any capacity, when you got there, was the vibe what you imagined? Did it live up to the hype and what you had been seeing in the pages of Wizard all those years? Oh my gosh,
0: yeah, it was euphoric. I mean, you walk in there and you see the—I think everybody has brought this up—you like you walk in there and you see like dozens and dozens of Bowen busts and statues lining the hallway and like all the original artwork in the collection that's up on the walls. And you're like, oh wow, that's a Watchman. page. that's crazy just kind of around you it it was a great vibe because you know everybody there even if you had like snips or disagreements at work everybody there was just there to talk about comics and like it's it, it's like so funny when you think about it like in in, in the context of any other job because like the, the arguments that were being had were like over no this is this is the artwork that's really going to define this era for the x-men or like this guy's really doing the best stuff right now at marvel you know it, it was it was all like fun conversation the best anybody ever got to see it that was when the website was running the thursday morning quarterback feature i don't know if you ever watched that on wizarduniverse.com
1: no I, I definitely heard of it but i i was not even aware of the website even though i was a devoted reader yeah
0: four years later it would have been a podcast and it would have been an amazing podcast because it was literally everybody picking their issues for the week and sitting down and doing like this should not have been done like this or this was the best moment in this comic it, it was it was sitting down at the table to go over that and it was a different combination of people every week and it, it, it's crazy when you look at it, it was all we, we wrote it out like script wise. Somebody transcribed the conversation at the end of every discussion, and that's what ran on the website. It was not audio or video.
1: Well, and I'll tell you that this is actually very exciting. You know, you, you gave us the visual in our mind of what the wizard offices look like. We actually have a video that was made by Alex kropenak and some other people on staff that he has unearthed, and we are going to be putting, uh, as of this recording, when people see your interview go up, they'll be able to go to our. Our YouTube channel and watch that video so
0: I want to say I know exactly what that video was and if it's the one that you're talking about that was like sort of uh ham-fisted humor and like yes it you know, sort of acted out I think Eric Moya's in that who, who was
1: another great editor? was there when I was I,
0: I remember seeing that it came out I, I think right after I left wizard I want to say that was right after I moved to Chicago
1: Okay, well, that's awesome. Yeah, like I say, so it'll just be a nice visual companion to what you're giving us now. I remember that. And Alex does amazing work and he's he's done amazing work
0: and everything I've seen him touch since he left Wizard.
1: So now you talked about, you know, like there, you had a, a great love of independent comics and that was kind of a a push that you were trying to give on the website itself. So tell us a little bit about how you did that and then what form it maybe took in on the printed page. Yeah, so
0: I mean I can draw a direct line for you actually and it, it this feels like a sliver of what I was doing but it was like when it when it finally came through It was actually kind of a big moment. The thing we specifically focused on the site in addition to indie comics was the web comics push, you know, and Rick was so wonderful about being supportive of this. And like Rick, Rick liked a lot of the same web comics I did at this, at that time, which made this a lot easier. But you know, the conversation came up because I was like, we're pushing this website and we're trying to get web traffic. Why don't we reach out more to people who are reading comics that are native digital comics, you know, web comics? These people are publishing on live journals. Anyway, Rick loved the idea. And it got to the point where we'd started doing a weekly interview series and it did incredible traffic numbers. And th- this was the big push and pull during that point in time. And Rick kind of got into this was there was a real attitude within the editorial office. I wouldn't, there was definitely, let's say this, there was not a unified strategy for the role the website played in coordination with the magazine and you know buddy Scolaire brought this up in the episode where you talked to him right it's like it was kind of trying to find its own role and they found nice ways in those early days with the aol deal to, to monetize some things but content wise from the Beginning when I got there, there was a real attitude among editorial leadership that good things should be saved for the print magazine because that's and and you know what that's where the money was at. There wasn't a desire to have like a forward-thinking digital strategy that leaned away from that. And, you know what, this is the same problem that print media had, you know, for a decade and to some extent still had have it today. But mostly they've either Sunk completely, or or figured things out. Anyway, like I remember Rick coming back from meetings talking about traffic, and the moment where people discovered that these web comics were doing crazy amounts of traffic for us, and Rick got into this, and it became the thing that it was like what we could do, right? Like we had a really wonderful Brian Michael Bendis series of, of interviews with people that that did well, but like you know the thing with those web comics was it it also just made sense from a if you think about from a content marketing standpoint you're thinking about these people who are publishing comics and have their own unique audiences and every time we do an interview for them they'd post a link on their in the comments of the the new web comic post and say hey here i talked to wizard about what i'm doing here go check this out and you know then they'd send you know tens of thousands or more people our way and these were new unique users coming to the website, which is just oh, like, that's what you want. It's like audience growth. And these are people who are interested in comics. And we kept going and, and it all kind of culminated, I think, to the point you're, you're bringing up in uh, wizard edge where we had a big indie section in there. And, you know, I bring this up like it's hard to categorize them as indie comics, but like they were the web comics darlings at the time. But you remember the pe- you remember, you know, Penny
1: Arcade? Yeah, I definitely remember that name. Coming yeah, up there the was. Yeah. So the thing this was, this was
0: the thing by that point, and this was not the case back when I first got there, they had a deal with Dark Horse to do some comics uh, to, to do some print printed print editions of their stuff at that time. And uh, Jerry and Mike were one of them. And that made it into Wizard. And I want to say that was the first Representation of web comics within a print wizard issue. And, you know, that took a year plus, I think, uh, of pushing and pushing, probably much as much to Dark Horse's credit for stepping out and, and doing that at the time. That was, that felt like victory at the time. It, that it was, was the just, shot
1: heard around the world, right? It's exactly, like we broke it just, through. It was like
0: web comics are part of this recognize just recognize that this is a movement of very excited readers and i'll, I'll tell you what they did actually because you, you started seeing it more and more in the artist alleys of the conventions and i'm sure that was also uh, something that was going on in the minds of the upper leadership there because the you know those independent creators you know like cyanide and happiness or all these other comics they showed up at those shows, and they were, as much as the print magazine was important, the convention attendees and booth sales were, and table sales were a massive part of, of Wizards' financial priorities. So it, it was the stars finally starting to align in a good way.
1: Yeah, now I'm curious, what does that have to do with the content that was part of Wizard Edge? Can you clarify for the listeners, what was Wizard Edge? Yeah, that was a, a special issue that we did that year
0: that was meant to focus on like non-mainstream comics uh, at the time that, that we wanted to put a bigger spotlight on.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. There's an ad in Wizard number 181 here for Wizard Edge in the very back, and it says, the coolest indie comic shops. Promote your next book now. Call your marketing partner at Wizard, you know, so it's definitely reaching out to those people that wanted more exposure, right?
0: You know, my read on it from the business end was—it was a real push to get more spotlight on the people who were in artists' Alley and showing up at shows to incentivize them to want to be a part of Wizard, because this is the game they always had to play, right? Is they want to throw the, the doors wide open to those people, but there, there was always a push from people to try to, the, the, you know, thinking like, oh, I'm in Artist Alley now, I can get in the magazine, and it was a delicate, you know, it's the same way a lot of a lot of magazines, I think, in some ways they want to make them feel they can be part of the conversation but like there were there was only so much that the business end could tell editorial to do so it, it's just part of that dance that they were doing and this was a chance to open up some opportunity. I, I couldn't tell you how well that vision was realized from a sales <laughs> standpoint. But yeah. I, I do know that there were a lot of introductions made during the course of the production of that issue to be like, hey, you may not know about this guy. And we'd be like, oh, we may have seen his book. And they'd push it our way. And we gave it a look for potential coverage. And like, I think if you look at the back of that issue, there was like a pure sales set of sales slots that were that were in there that were paid placement. Um But without in front of me, it's hard for me to... I
1: was going to say, we're going to have to track down that issue and take a deeper look down the line. So this era we're talking about, though, is 2006, 2007, right? So what's interesting, though, is during this time, I know that you had the opportunity to interview and be involved with some of the creators that had really hit their stride in the early 90s, people with names like Liefeld and McFarlane and, you know, Clive Barker even. So I'm very curious we recently, let's, let's start with, you know, with the big name here. So you talked to Todd McFarlane on a very interesting project. What what can you tell us about that
0: article? This was not run in the magazine itself. It was drafted and it was ready because I was talking to him for another piece uh, that was, that was for the print magazine. And I remember talking to him and he's such a, he's like, he's a huge, huge baseball fan. Like he could talk to that guy about baseball forever, but I I always wanted to get that plate, that sidebar placed. And I don't even know why we didn't get it on the website at one point. We should have. I got him to give me his tips on on fantasy baseball picking because he has like his own like sort of elite fantasy baseball team. At least he did at that point. This was the back back in the days when Yahoo baseball was a much bigger thing that I maybe it still is. I, I don't do fantasy sports really at all anymore. But uh yeah, yeah, we I I, I definitely remember that being a great great point of that conversation was, was discussing uh, what you do and don't do for for fantasy baseball drafts and and teams.
1: Now, on the other side, very curious, because we've talked to a few of your, uh, you know, former co-workers who had also run-ins with Rob Liefeld. Some said, hey, Rob was intense, but that's what you get when it's Rob. Some people felt threatened by Rob. So what was your experience in interviewing Rob Liefeld? It was, you know, I, let me, I don't know, I don't know how to
0: place this story. Because this is the other thing you've run into is like there were at that point over the course of Wizard's you know first fifteen years of existence or so there were spats and behind the scenes drama I, and I don't know enough to say which ones actually resulted in legal action or or not or which just resulted in people who were refusing to talk to the magazine.
1: Yeah, we we knew we knew there was a, a falling out with Todd McFarland for a time. Yeah, yeah exactly.
0: exactly. I heard about that. On your, I remember you did cover that in episode, but I think it was when maybe Young Blood relaunched. An image uh, i forget what the first call was i had with him i think i talked to him on at least two or three occasions i, I gotta say this y- you can criticize whatever you want about rob Liefeld's artwork but like its ability to be on a cover and sell comic books right off the shelf to 14 15 year olds is unassailable you can't knock it for not selling comics to the audience that you know he yeah, was trying he to still sell.
1: does it to this day
0: yeah exactly and i and i i love the energy In his artwork, you know, I I tell everybody I meet when Rob Liefeld comes up to go Google the Rob Liefeld Bible graphic novel concept artwork that he did. Have you ever seen this? No, no. I, I saved some high resolution images I got of this at one point. I forget if we actually ran those on wizarduniverse.com or not, but like, go just do yourself a favor and you will not regret it. It's like, there's like a Rob Liefeld does Noah and it's like this giant like warrior dwarf covered in like a hundred <laughs> pockets with this giant hammer and this like hover ship arc behind him it is spectacular in terms of it's like just fantasy visuals he had like a david and goliath piece of artwork that was like a giant cyclops centurion robot with like this tiny guy who looks kind of i, I want to say it was like kind of like marty mcfly looking dude with a a sling or something. Uh, There was like, I know Samson was one he did. And I remember talking to him about it. And there was like, there was there was like a money quote from that interview where he was like, I want to say, I'm going to butcher, butcher this paraphrasing, I'm sure. But there was something like where it was like, the Bible was the original Star Wars or something. And people need to see that. (laughs) And it speaks to the vision he had behind this. And I, I, I'd buy a copy if I saw it today on the shelf. Like I I still would love to see it get made. I don't know what happened to it. And then there was another story he told me about when he'd been pitching, I want to say, profit to Tom Cruise. And there was this wonderful story he told. And like I just can't capture for you in a if I could get a thimble of the energy to communicate to you that I was witness to and hearing him relate a story of him being in an office with Tom Cruise pitching and exchanging creative ideas about how over the top an action sequence in a movie could be, it was one of the pleasures of working there. And I think one of those conversations I had him was also the one where he mentioned that, you know, he owned, I don't know if he still owns it, obviously, because this was years ago, but the Schwarzenegger sword from Conan.
1: Whoa.
0: <laughs> that was a sidebar. I forget which issue that, that showed up in.
1: but I was going to say, that hasn't come up on his podcast yet, so we'll wait for that. I, I hope he brings it up.
0: It was like a question for a, a longer thing we were doing, asking creators about their prized nerd collection you know like what what what's like one object in your nerd collection that you hold above all else and like for him it was it was the conan sword and i, I thought that was the coolest answer.
1: yeah now this is interesting um, I you know we i mentioned that you would talk to clive barker at one point we were just covering recently in our chronology in 1993 he was launching his razor line oh wow. at yeah, marvel that, comics
0: yeah yeah this this was long after comics it was this was when I was covering video games for them because there was there was a point where Ryan Panagos was handling video games for a while, and then Mike Cotton was handling video games for a while, and I was the one that they were often coming to to do the interviews and features to go into that section. There was one point where I was doing more reviews. Uh, in fact, my one cover feature in all of my time at Wizard happened to be a game that went on the on the cover one of the latter issues while I was there. And yeah, so I went talking about a game he was working on for uh, that, that came out on and it was out on Xbox 360. I don't know if it was out on PS4, but I actually had to go into the city because you know you've talked about this. Like Wizard is is a train ride up from. Man- Manhattan to to get to Rockland County. I think it was at the W Hotel there. And I just can't properly tell you what a gentleman and a magnificent figure Clive Barker is to walk into a room with and how welcoming and what a wonderful conversation it was. It was like great visual hand gestures and storytelling. You know, this deep English, well thought out Expressive voice behind everything, and I remember him stepping out for his. He had a cigar out there on the the patio and uh, drinking espresso while, while we talked. It was cool, and it was talking about a different medium and like what he thought about writing for something that wasn't cinema or, or a novel and, like, what that was like for him for as a creator. And that was a cool conversation to have with somebody.
1: Now, you mentioned earlier also, you know, that you were doing some freelance work for Toy Fair. So how involved were you in the later part of your career at Wizard with Toy Fair? Were they had their own separate thing then?
0: Yeah, I mean, they were their own separate thing.
1: It was limited. It was, it was more like, um, you know, I'd been doing some freelance work for Wizard.
0: And I remember the summer after my, my senior year of college, uh, I got introduced at the Wizard booth to Adam Tracy, who was an assistant editor there at the time. And Adam started slinging assignments to me on almost a month, I think pretty much a monthly basis after that. So I was doing some humor pieces on some toys getting launched. I remember like the Samurai Shampoo toys came out. Something I did, something there, and it's hard for me thinking back. Maybe once or twice I wrote an article for them while I was in the office as a staff writer. It kind of all blurs together, but I it definitely wasn't a big focus for me.
1: Now, do you recall any hijinks during your time there that just like you know, like you said, you mentioned just kind of the fun conversations, Thursday morning quarterback, things like that, but just the general mayhem that might have ensued every once in a while
0: when I was there? as an intern tj and i were we, we shared a dorm room together that was at a uh, a college off off site uh, it was a little bit up the road from the wizard wizard office it was a nice reasonable commute it was a religious college and the uh what we had to sign there was a, a, in our lease or whatever the effective equivalent of a lease was at that dorm room we had to sign a thing saying that we would not dance on school property <laughs> tj can tell you more about that if you talk to him but down the street from there was this there was a house where a bunch of wizard guides lived, and i do remember there was an attempt and I, i think it was successful to ride a skateboard across the patio while it was on fire wow a ghost rider skateboard. Yeah, that was like a <laughs> ghostwriter skateboard, basically. And it was long talked about. I forget if they tried to do it again. I'm sure they did. But that was a good house of folks. It was like, I think Mike Cotton and Ricky Purden and James Walker were living there at that point in time. I think, and maybe Alex Segura too. They swapped in and out of that house. There were a lot of shared residences. Like the last year I was working at Wizard, I, I actually moved into Ben Morris's old apartment when he moved out of there, which was a shoebox of a, the the rent was good, I will say that, but boy, that that place was, if I took my wife by there today, she would probably be frightened to know that I was living there.
1: (laughs) So tell us a little bit then about some of maybe the, the perks of working at Wizard, whether there's some mementos you hung on to or just some items you had back in the day where you're just like, wow, I can't believe this is available to me. Let me tell you the best perk. It was the advanced screenings of things
0: that we got to see. Oh. I wrote some movie reviews while I was there too That was a lot of fun because I, I did a lot more movie news coverage work when I, when I got to MTV News a few years later I can't remember which film it was I, I hesitate to say because I'll get it wrong But uh, I do remember being in line when uh, Chris Claremont showed up And was in line with us Because this was the thing When we got the advanced seats in the screenings from like Marvel or Warner Brothers It was usually in the same batch that they were giving out to creators at the same time So there were there were some fun stops where we got to go in there But I, I was going to say that by far the most memorable screening was one of the ones we did in the office because like mel kylo who was our hollywood contact at, at that point would always get the early buzz about deals that were coming in or announcements that were coming up and he got a screener copy of i guess it was the trailer or the pilot for the cw aquaman show oh yeah did you ever watch this
1: thing i i haven't seen it i've only heard about the legend something reef right mercy reef or something i think it was called the
0: best part was like Ving Rhames walking in in this one scene being like
1: Oren you have got to get back
0: to the ocean <laughs> So those moments of like gathering around the table where we had the screening room it was, it was one of the meeting offices where they had a uh, they'd roll in the TV and we'd all watch stuff together those moments were amazing and I th- th- you couldn't have asked for a better room to share those experiences with in like getting first reactions to these things before before they were out in the wild
1: now you were there also this is something that I find interesting because you were there in the days when wizard was still in its standard kind of almost comic book dimension format and then you were there when it went to like the full larger magazine format like almost rolling stone size
0: i, I was definitely there i can't remember if that happened while i was an intern or while i was freelancing or when i came back during the staff days I, yeah i do remember that i, I remember that change very vividly and was a, it was a huge deal when that happened it just felt like a different magazine in your hand when you when you would pick it up you know
1: yeah and so the the question that i have then for you is do you feel like during you know your latter days there was wizard still as prominent a force like you said you're getting advanced screeners you're getting things like that but you also worked on the website side of things so did you see that kind of writing on the wall as you were working there and continued any contact with people that did
0: you know, here's what I'll say. Like we made our big push online and I think there was a vision within the department there that was, was clearly not shared when Rick went away. And it was a larger thing because like, you know, it was one thing when Inquest got dissolved and that, that was a really sad day. Watching Rick go was, was a pretty bad day, but like also watching all those guys in the Inquest office like they called everybody out into the main lobby i remember and it was an announcement that they'd made the decision to to end inquest and that was a kicker and and maybe everything kind of it, it was after that that i saw the decisions they were making and that here's what it boils down to i mean when i accepted the job to to go to chicago and work for ddp it was at a point in time where after i think for the last 3 months or so somebody had been getting laid off about every other week like pretty dependably if your phone rang between like eight and nine o'clock in the morning, everybody would like look up. And it was just a thing everybody was aware of. And it was really bad for morale around there. That was the feeling I remember when the opportunity came up with DDP. And I was like, all right, if there's a time to, to make this transition. Also, I had a lot of friends and family in Chicago. So it was a move that made a lot of sense to me. Chicago is like my favorite city in the world. So it worked out and it was the right It was the right decision at the right point in time. Yeah, they kept going, and I I, when I say that I I really don't want to diminish any of the awesome work that was going on after that. Like you brought up Alex Kropenak, and like they really could have done a lot more cool stuff with some of the video that he was he was cranking out in those days. And I had a a glimmer in my eye thinking like ah this this could take off in a new direction and they could do something better with it. But you know what they made business decisions and they picked their battles and management decided what to do. When I when I was working at a comic book publisher after I left Wizard, we we I, we had booths at Wizard shows, and they were still very positive experiences as a Wizard customer at that point. But I also saw what was going on at Newsarama and Comic Book Resources, and they were just growing like crazy. And like I wrote for Comic Book Resources quite a bit after I left wizard and then later after i left ddp and was was basically a full-time freelancer for a few years doing news work and i saw how well they were doing as digital properties and you know obviously both newsarama and comic book resources have long since sold to bigger corporations and had pretty good exits for themselves you know they, they just weren't constrained by a lot of the other business demands and legacy tie-ups that that wizard had to deal with in, in making a digital property work I just I knew if they weren't going to try really hard to make a, digi- uh, a website work that it probably wasn't going to be a media company that I was going to see a long future at.
1: Now one of the decision makers behind the scenes there was it was a figurehead uh, that everybody knows and he knew <laughs> the question was coming, so we have to ask. Gareb Shavis, cool or fool? Yeah, here's what I'll say. And it, it this is going to sound like a carbon copy
0: of what you, what you've heard from other people cuz I shook his hand twice while I worked there and both times he said, "Hi, Garob, You know. <laughs> but you know, then when I when I left The first time I was an actual customer with a booth, he walked up immediately to me and was like, oh, hi, Brian. It's great to see you.
1: Hey, that's progress. You made an impression.
0: You got to give respect to the fact that he found a business model to work during the upward swing of the speculator boom and all the other things going on in 90s comics when they did. I can't speak for all of the many problems many people may have had with him over the years, but... Yeah, you know, he made that work and he made a he made a magazine that i like reading you know i would have liked to have stuck around longer if it had if it had been you know making some different changes but like i i will always have respect for what he built there
1: very cool all right now do you have any specific mementos things you've kept as a memory of the good times at wizard are there things that stick with you or is it the relationships what what do you have
0: the relationships are the best i still have a few of the old statues
1: that they'd give us
0: some of the extras that the higher level Staff didn't want to take home when they got the statues in for taking photos and things like there's actually a Professor X Diamond Select statue sitting right behind me, right? Yeah, I
1: see it there, that's pretty cool.
0: And I've got a couple others, I've got a cable up there that's pretty cool. And I got you know, it was really nice. So, talking about the webcomic stuff, so Jonathan Rosenberg, who who does goats on goats.com, well, he he resumed goats uh, a little while ago, but at the time, goats was his, his, his. primary webcomic. And he sent me a signed action figure when he did the series of action figures for his his site of uh Diablo the Satanic Chicken and signed it. <laughs> and I, I really appreciated that. Like because it was I, I was just like glad that the creative community in webcomics was was digging what we were we were doing. And I, I still keep that for my time there. I'd say that was cool. I I will tell although I'll tell you what I I would have loved to have to have taken ad there and I don't know where it ended up, but somebody somewhere has that roger corman uh fantastic four movie poster that used to hang up
1: oh no way we have a friend of the show that would yeah man he would sell his house to (laughs) get that
0: episode i love that tagline
1: to no end
0: from that movie that was like i'm gonna paraphrase again it was it was like part elastic part rock part invisible (laughs) part fire together they are fantastic That just, I I can never not laugh when I think of that. Uh, That was an amazing piece of work.
1: If any of you Wizard staffers out there have that rolled up in your closet somewhere, you give us a (laughs) heads up. Steven Seppelis wants that from you. Now, Brian, for you, like, how did Wizard end up affecting your future career? And maybe do you feel like you had an influence? They for sure did more coverage. The thing was that, I mean, the website just
0: didn't have the resources and big push behind it. After that, I want to say Jim Gibbons was the primary person in charge of the website after I departed. But at its peak while Rick was there, you know, we had two designers and uh, Sean Collins was doing Sean Collins, who's amazing. And if you talk to him and he's willing to get on, you should totally talk to him because he's an amazing person to have a conversation with. He was doing a lot of time for the, the site. And then Rick and I were both there. And then after that, it just sort of had a downward slope of resources as they were trying to make the print stuff work. And I think we're doubling down in conventions. And there was a, a failed redesign that, you know, I won't bore you with details about, but I think that was also a turning point where I just saw like, you know, it's just not get This This part of the company is not going to get the resources that I, I would like to see it, something like this get right now in the current media environment.
1: Beyond that, then, did your relationships formed at Wizard do that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I worked for, you know, a non-big Big Two publisher
0: right after that when I went to Chicago uh, and I ran the marketing department where we were publishing Dungeons and & Dragons and the end of the G.I. Joe comics when they lost the license to that but Hack Slash and a bunch of other horror comics the Halloween comics and stuff and I spent all that was a wonderful year of my life too like a huge percentage of my favorite people I've ever worked with were in the comic book industry Sean Dove and Tim Steele there were, were such big helps in Chicago and then you know after that those connections were really great to me too because I when I went back into freelancing full-time For a few years, Rick introduced me to the the MTV News people, and that's how I started doing work for the front page MTV News for their movies coverage and uh, started doing video game coverage there on their multiplayer's blog, which was really cool. And, you know, I had a lot of connections in comics that just made it really easy for me to reach out and get responses to interviews. That's why I did stuff for comic book resources. And I, I still loved it when I'd, I'd go to a convention for comic book resources to talk to people. Cause I went to so many comic book shows over, over those years of my life. It's, it's crazy. Like you think about the volume of stories that we put out, like Rick and I together, like, you know, I, I think I did like at peak like eight to ten stories in a day from san diego one day when we went out there to sdcc and i mean that's a job that taught me how to grind and it taught me it just taught me like the rule of editorial content and news writing like you got to come up with a draft like get the draft across the finish line and sometimes that's just what you got to do to keep things running do
1: you have a convention story that you could close us out on what's the best
0: convention story that's semi-appropriate to tell here (laughs) (laughs) Say this, and I'll I'll leave it. I'll leave the identity masked. For here, but there was a, a Wizard World Philadelphia. The, the people you would run into at the bar—that was the best part of the conventions. Was who would show up there, like running into Mark Millar at the bar, or I remember there was a San Diego where I was talking to Mel, and he introduced me to Seth Green, and like they were all the old Robot Chicken former Toy Fair staffers were all there at a table, and Seth Green was like the nicest person I have, I've ever met in that context. Like I, I gotta say that. But there was a there was a Wizard World where a prominent superhero actor who I will not name had been at the bar down like a few seats away from us and literally got up and left his tab at the bar and i'll never forget the bartender looking up at everybody at the at the bar and using the euphemism of the superhero that this actor played looked up at everybody and was just like did the blank just walk out on his bar tab here (laughs) and everybody just looking around being like i think that just happened
1: wow man oh that's great well brian why don't you tell folks where they can find you now and and what you're doing online
0: yeah sure watch warmeth.org that's my website you can find me on twitter as warmeth i'm also warmeth on pokemon go if anybody wants to find me on there happy (laughs) to have you yeah twitter and my website that's that's where you'll find me and i'm always happy to talk comics with you or anybody else who finds me on there because it's yeah it's 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 always been a huge part of my life and it's it's fun to talk about this stuff in retrospect (laughs)
1: So that about does it for this episode of The Wizard Files. Thanks again to Brian Warmouth for being here with us. And thank you for listening. And of course, remember, this was episode 10. We have many more to come in the new year. If you are a former wizard staffer who would like to tell your story, go ahead and DM us on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics, or send us an email, wizardscomicspod at gmail.com. People want to hear your stories. We are so enjoying the opportunity to connect with those of you who made the Guide to Comics as special as it truly was. But if you are also finding the show through these interviews, there is so much more Wizards content to enjoy. Every Wednesday, we bring you a full review and discussion based around an issue of Wizard Magazine. As of this recording, 25 issues under our belt and many more to come, getting into the what I like to call the golden age of Wizard. And then also every other Wednesday opposite those we have our mini episodes our Wizard's Half series where we get into other sections of the magazine such as amazing art, we talk about some of the homemade heroes we take quizzes and we even have a review series going where I am going through the entire run of the Marvel 2099 universe on the 2009 hotline. So if you've wanted to revisit or never got into that line, something special for you to look forward to. Finally, you know, we also have our YouTube channel where you can find Action Figure Fury, where we dare to share some of our favorite action figures and vintage collectibles. Also, we have our Logbox Roulette series where we grab random issues from our collections and tell the stories behind them. And also, as mentioned in this episode, we have exclusive content that we dig out of the wizard vaults Alex Kropenak was nice enough to bring us a tour of the wizard offices from the mid 2000s and he has said that there are other videos to come so another thing to look forward to in 2021 again we want to thank you so much for listening and thanks to the Retro Network for being our home so visit theretronetwork.com or at TRN social on Twitter and until next time we're closing the files.
0: This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.